Good morning again. So uh, today we're still in Galatians, Galatians 4 verses 1 through 11. And uh, Paul, throughout Galatians and in this passage as well, kind of continues this um, kind of this battle between grace and work and law and uh, wanting us, wanting the Galatians to embrace living by faith and to turn away from this temptation to go back to putting themselves under law and under rules as if somehow that's better than Christ. So, um, so Paul here continues to find new ways to express the glory and freedom of the gospel and contrast it with the law. And one reason this, why this discussion remains important today as we, is that today we still have trouble sorting out how law and grace interact. And um, so I have three points today. Point one, uh, verses one through three, what it means to be under guardians and managers or elementary principles. Point two, sonship is better. Verses four through seven. And then verses eight through 11, either running in circles or learning to love faith. So let's read the passage. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Uh, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your words. Thank you for your word to us, Lord, Scripture that reveals your heart, Lord, tells us what's true, uh, and gives us, uh, introduces us to the work and person of the Holy Spirit, to our Savior, Jesus Christ, uh, that, and uh, the work he did in reconciling us to you, the Father. Uh, Lord, your word is a treasure for us, and I ask that you would, the truths of your word that we're looking at this morning, Lord, that you would make them accessible to your people. Lord, your truths are powerful, and they change us. And that's my prayer this morning, Lord, is that we would all be changed as we look at your word and dwell on what it says. So, Lord, we commend this time to you that you would fill it. And we ask this blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. So an heir, and this is, let me just, so for my own peace of mind, say heir, H-E-I-R, not E-R-R, E-R-R-O-R. We're not that kind of heir, 
although the Galatians were looking to be an error. Anyway, it's talking about heirs being um, inheritors. An heir, when he is a child, is no different than a slave. In fact, we were all children, that is to say, we were all enslaved under elementary principles or under the law until the gospel of Christ came and changed everything. Uh, There's room for discussion here, but basically the elementary principles and the guardians and managers, and that's elementary principles on one side, guardian managers on the other, they're still very closely related, not exactly the same thing, but very similar in the practice and what they, their effect in our lives. Uh, think of elementary principles as hoops that you try to jump through to propitiate a god. Remember in the ancient world, the gods were not holy or sovereign the way that we understand the one true god to be, but they, were, they, had, um, they had a list and you did their list, you served that God the way, he, if we wanted child sacrifice or if we wanted fruits in season, whatever it was, you gave that God what he required. And then you, that was how you essentially manipulated him to do what you wanted. And uh, so it was elementary principles uh, were kind of like how to do that. And um, so every religion on earth had a plan or path, still does. For you to obey or follow in order to please whatever gods are being saved. The only, the only religion that has grace where salvation is a gift is Christianity. I'm not aware of any others where salvation is given because you're, because, um, you're believing in and trusting in God. So for those of you, the Mandalorian is about to start in a couple weeks. Those of you who, are, who have watched him, you know, you know this phrase, this is the way. So that's every religion has a way and a path. For the Jews, their way was the law. It was their guardian and their manager. And um, the similarity between the elementary principles and the law was this, is they, they, they could both be understood or read as try harder, jump through hoops, do things to somehow be right with God. And um, that was a mishandling, especially of the law. But we'll look at that uh, now more completely. So uh, Galatians 3.19 told us, tells us that the law was added because of transgression, meaning that we needed the law to underline and demonstrate the sinfulness of sin. The truth is, is that we tend to grade ourselves on a curve and give ourselves a pass because we understand why we do what we do. And we need help to remember uh, Proverbs 14.2, which says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. So we have ideas, we have things we think will work. Uh, we look at life around us, we look at how we live, and we think, well, if we do these things, it will mean success. Uh, but if your thinking is flawed, and our thinking because of sin is flawed, then your conclusions will always be flawed, and our conclusions are flawed. That's why this, this is true. A way that looks right to us doesn't produce what we want it to because our conclusions aren't right, or our, our, our assumptions aren't right. So this is where the law comes in handy, to remind us of how many things are sinful and ultimately to expose how sinful they are. Romans 7, 7 through 14 says, What then shall we say? 
that the law is sin. By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would, have not, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Now there's a lot in this passage, and I'm not (laughs) preaching this passage. I'm not going to unpack everything in in here this morning. But the, the basic gist of it is the sin is brought to, brought to a focus by the law. The law, uh, by telling us not, what not to do, engages our hearts somehow and so that we want to do it. Okay, if I just, I'm tempted to tell everybody, don't move during the service, just sit where you are. Now all of you are going to want to get up and do something because I said that. So that, that, anyhow, <laughs> that's how the law works. By telling you, what not to do, it, it wakens the desire to do that very thing. So the law teaches us how sinful we are. By telling us both what to do and what not to do, the law serves to awaken our sin and rebuke it at the same time. Because the law does these things, um, then when we, the law can help us come to Christ by showing us both how sinful and how helpless we are to stop on our own. The law, used lawfully, prepares us for Christ. For when the law has done its work in us, we both know that we are completely compromised by our sin and that we need help, that we are not enough on our own. The very first beatitude is so clear on this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the blessedness of being poor in spirit is that you know you're not enough. You know you need help, and that's a tremendous blessing, a tremendous place to be because of what's really true, which is that Christ is Lord and salvation is a gift. So when the law has humbled our pride and self-sufficiency, then Christ, who clothes us with his own righteousness, is a wonderful Savior who gives us salvation that we could never earn. When you know that you need help, then the, the, a Savior who helps you is good news. And if you don't think you need help, then he's just one more thing to check off. And there's a huge difference between the two. David in Psalm 51, David knew the law, and this is David's heart. He gives us a picture of someone who's been humbled by the law because the sin, his, the sin of his heart was exposed. In Psalm 51, verses 9 through 12, and this is after he has committed all the things he did with Uriah and Bathsheba, uh, said, Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities, praying to God. 
Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. So the Holy Spirit uses the law to convict us of sin and to bring us to Christ and to keep us there. Uh, verse 1 in our chapter in uh, Galatians 4 today tells us that we were slaves. Now, a slave may work hard, may even work himself to death, but he's on a treadmill of working hard but not getting anywhere. No matter how hard he works, he begins as a slave and he ends as a slave. So we too, before Christ, might have been or might try being very mindful, being very disciplined, diligent, generous. And there are any number of books that have been written by a lot of people on how to have a happy home, a successful business, how to defeat clutter, how to vote, how to think what's really important, etc. And they might be a good book making valid points, at least some of them. But none of them will break the power of indwelling sin or confer a righteousness that will fit us for heaven. And that's the only kind of righteousness that really counts. The only righteousness that's true righteousness lasts forever and it comes to us as a gift. So unless that book also points to you to Christ as Savior and Lord, it's ultimately another dead end. So let's look at uh, looking a little more with a little more detail at what elementary spirits are. Um, Colossians 2.8, Colossians 2.13. See that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, either worldly or Jewish, to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, with that's Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So, um, the elementary spirits, philosophy, and empty deceit that comes from human tradition... Uh, they have a certain way they want you to live. It's like, when I mess up, I want to try to make it better. At least, <laughs> usually, I want to try to make it better. If it's something I, can't make, I can make be- better, because I believe in right and wrong and, and living uh, in a righteous life, I, I want to make it better. But, um, you know, some things I can, but what I find is that I don't even know in how many ways I sin. And the main offense of my sin is against an absolutely holy God who is uncompromisable in his being and actions. He can never be less than absolutely holy and good. And uh, so it's like the offense of my sins isn't just looking around me. It's looking at God. That's the only way I truly know how bad they are. Uh, some years ago, we went as a family on a trip to Washington, D.C., and Jenny and I had lived close to Washington, D.C. years ago, like when Gabe was born back in um, Virginia. And we used to go to the Smithsonian, and one of the places we liked to go to was the National Gallery of Art. Now, we went in to the National Gallery of Art with all, seven of our kids, and um, they have these guards in every single room, <laughs> 
And when we came in, it's like we got a little detail who followed us around because, you know, I had so many kids. And one of the rules is you can't touch a picture. And I, as a homeschool dad, I was kind of pretty confident my kids are well-behaved. They're not, you know, this is not, they don't need to follow us like this. Then sometime later, when uh, we were just discussing some of our memories of the trip, I found out that at least four of my daughters managed to touch a painting without getting caught. Not my sons, my daughters. So um, nothing bad happened, but it's like if they had happened to have dirt or oil or something on their fingers and left a smudge, or they'd fall, fallen against it, stumbled and somehow uh, damaged it, that would have, that's a human thing. A work of art by a man who's maybe not particularly wholly talented, but not particularly wholly. But we could have done something that we could never replace. If it's a Monet, a Rembrandt, a Cezanne, if it's damaged, it's not, you know, it's like it might be repaired, but it's not the same. And that's just a human sin. So if I can get in over my head with something as non-eternal and non-holy as a painting, think of how much trouble I can get in with even the smallest defense against an infinitely holy God. We needed help. Our debts are bigger than we are. And we can't put them right. And that's one of the lies of the elementary spirits is by trying harder, by being sincere, by you know, some human method, we can make things better. And I'm, I'm not saying we shouldn't be sincere. <laughs> and I'm not saying we shouldn't try. But the, the effectiveness of our lives to live them well comes from knowing Christ, comes from living by faith, making him our hope, not from trying hard. So Jesus not only canceled the record of, that record of debt with, with its legal claims by nailing them to the cross, um, he did this so powerfully that the worldly rulers and authority were not only defeated, the ground that they stood on to make their accusations was gone, taken away by Jesus' work on the cross, and they themselves were put to shame before Christ. So verse, uh, back to Colossians 2, verse 20 and 21. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still in the life Still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And so so the system of human of merely human-based holiness is exposed as weak and broken, not capable of delivering on its false promises. Again, we're looking at the elementary principles because we want to understand what the Galatians wanted to go back to and then why that was so ridiculous, why, that was, why Paul was so up in arms. So let's look at point two, Abba, Father, what we have in Christ that is so much better. But when the fullness of verses four through seven, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that they so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. 
So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So this, uh, this idea of being sons, it, it's for all believers. Just, just so you'll know, <laughs> there's nothing gender about this sonship. It's for everyone who comes to Christ. Jesus Christ is the end and fulfillment of the law and prophets. They all anticipate and point to the coming of the Messiah or the Christ. Same thing. So when God's timing came to pass, he sent Jesus, born of a woman, as promised. So Jesus just didn't step onto the stage as a mature man, sort of making an appearance. All of a sudden he's here. He became an embryo. He became an infant. Um, Thinking about those things, like I, I love Christmas partly just because I get to dwell on, on what the incarnation means, how much Christ humbled himself and emptied himself. Um, so Jesus was born of a woman. He was truly a man, just like us. He didn't um, like us, and he was like us as every, in every way, but one big difference, and that was without sin. Somehow fully man, he was fully man, will remain fully God, at the same time, which is both a wonder and a mystery. And it's a wonder and a mystery that we absolutely needed. And that's why it was accomplished, I believe. Because we needed him to be both one of us. He had to be a man to die in our place, to take my place on the cross and, and pay the price of my sins. He had to be a man to confer. If he was not a man, then the gift would not have been appropriate. Uh, but if he hadn't been God... In the flesh, he wouldn't have had the ability to cover my sins. I can't cover my own sins, let alone anybody else's. But Jesus, because he was fully God and fully man, was able to cover all of our sins. So, born of a woman fulfills the promise of God given in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent If you should ever be tempted to doubt God's love for us or the depth of redemption that we have in Christ, I want you to think about these two things. First, that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit completely embraced the difficulty and the cost of God the Son becoming a man. Uh, And understand that it cost the whole Trinity. They, They were one. And we don't really fully understand or comprehend what their oneness is, but they are one, one God. They're they're so united in heart and purpose and fellowship that they are truly one. So for God the Son to depart and some, and (laughs) the scripture doesn't tell us what he emptied himself of, but um, at the minimum, he left a lot of things. He left the fellowship of the Father and the Holy Spirit, uh, the, the perfect fellowship, and he still prayed and had the Holy Spirit and the Father still were part of who Christ is. But at the minimum, it's a huge sacrifice and an, a nearly unbelievable humbling of himself uh, to do that just so he could redeem a rebellious and sin-soaked people. So that's one thing, to remember what it cost Christ to become a man, it, even though we can't really uh, put a... A price on it. The other thing to remember is the very costly price of our redemption. Uh, when Jesus, the, the thing that, that, that underlines for me the most how much it cost Christ was 
the picture of him in Gethsemane crying out to his father, Abba, Father, take this cup from, from me. It was an awful cup that Jesus had to, had to drink to accomplish our, our salvation. And he wasn't really saying, I don't want to accomplish their salvation. He was, but, he, but he knew it was going to be an awful price. And so he was appropriately asking his father to take that cup away from him. <clears throat> he would not have prayed that if the price wasn't awful. So just, and this isn't about being, <clears throat> being guilty. It's about understanding and appreciating the unfathomable depth of his love and his commitment to your complete salvation. So those are the two things. Remember what it cost Christ to become a man and we remember what it cost him to accomplish your redemption. We can always hold on to those things. We can build our faith on a sure foundation of knowing the commitment that God has to us, his love for us in Christ. And Jesus was also born under the law. Jesus was under the law just like us, but unlike us, he fulfilled the perfect righteousness required by the law so he could be our perfect sacrifice without spot or blemish. And so he could give us or credit us with his own righteousness, not just pay for our sins. Our pain for our sins was taking them out so that they're not counted against us anymore. They're gone. But giving us his righteousness is, is, is uh, another act on top of paying for our sins. He gave us his righteousness. He lived a perfect life, and that life is credited to us through Christ. So he's our, our sin bearer and our righteousness. Uh, the whole of redemptive history was so that we might be adopted as sons by God in Christ. Jesus addressed the Father as Abba, his Papa. And now because of everything that Jesus did and because of who he is, and as a direct result of the Holy Spirit's presence in us, we also address the Father as Abba. We also have been adopted as sons. The same spirit that was working in Jesus that cried, Abba, Father, that opened up his heart to God the Father, we have. We, we have the same, we have this, we're not Christ, but we have the same closeness of relationship with God that Christ did. That this ability to come to the Father. We're, we, are, we have the spirit as, of sons, and that's what sons do. They cry out to their Father. So it's such a, a, a privilege and such a blessing. So he didn't, when God adopted us as sons, he didn't just change our legal status. He gave us a new nature. When God adopts us as his own, he also changes who we are from the inside out. Our hearts are now patterned after God's through the indwelling person and work of the Holy Spirit in us. And he never leaves. He lives in us. One of the powerful pictures in scripture was when Jesus is baptized and the Holy Spirit descends like a dove and he, he remains on Jesus, which is contrasted with the Old Testament picture of the Holy Spirit coming and filling Samson or run, uh, resting on Saul so that Saul prophesies. The Holy Spirit doesn't just come now and inhabit us for a moment. He lives in us. It's a tremendous promise and grace. Uh, so he never, 
He transforms us that we are are in spirit and truth more like our Savior. We are being conformed to the image of the Son by the ongoing work of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Abba Father is for us a cry of intimacy and dependence uh, because we are adopted children of God. This is now the cry of our captured hearts. And now again, by faith, we expect our Heavenly Father to hear and respond to us. Um, we are children. We are heirs. The Holy Spirit lives in us. Heaven and, and eternity with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is our destiny through Christ Jesus our Lord. So, live by faith. The gospel applies to everything, to all of life, as pervasive as our sin nature is and was. The grace of God is deeper, stronger, better, and more pervasive than our sin. Let me say that again. The gospel applies to all of life, to everything in our lives, and in the same way that our sin was pervasive and we were... It affected every part of our being. The grace of God now is deeper, stronger, better, and more pervasive than our sin. Someday, God's plan will be complete and sin will be no more. Sin had an entrance into the world. Sin will have an exit from the world. But the grace of God in Christ will never (laughs) go away. So turn from yourself and stop being your own hope. Christ has always been better, and through the Holy Spirit's work and presence in us, we can always turn to and live in Christ. So ask yourself this question. Is Christ at the heart of all that you think and do? Okay, I know none of us is perfect. (laughs) So none of us do this perfectly all the time. But when we recognize that we're leaning on or preferring our own opinions over Scripture in some sense... Learn to turn from that. Learn to make course corrections. Lean more into Christ and less into yourself. There is a certain genius to living by faith that must be practiced to be fully appreciated. So I'm calling on all of us, myself included, to live more in the faith that, uh, that brought us to Christ and less in ourselves. So we have the first two points, living under the uh, on our efforts in the you know under the, using the laws and means of righteousness, you know, somehow thinking that if we observe a certain day, it, it'll make us more holy, or we have sonship in Christ. So that that this is kind of the same. The what we'll be looking at in the third point. The, the point is largely made by looking at the verse two. So verses eight through eleven in chapter Galatians four says, formerly when you did not know God. You were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I have labored over you in vain. So in our passage today, Paul began by reviewing how miserably weak and ineffective the elementary principles were. And even the law as a guardian was only a temporary measure, mainly meant as a vehicle to deliver the Jews to Christ and then to then the Gentiles also, to prepare them for Christ and for believing in him. Believing in Christ is the prize, prize that delivers the goods. Believing in him brings him 
and all that he accomplished through his life and death into our lives by the power of sins forgiven and righteousness credited uh, because of a new heart that can once more hope and rejoice in God in a way that was largely closed to us since being ejected from the garden. Our, our hearts in the garden became about us. So a huge part of our redemption is having hearts that can care about God again and love him. All this and more through the Holy Spirit who no longer just fills us here and there but now lives in us. All of this contrasted with the law and, the, and what the law and the elementary principles brought us, which was what? <laughs> Waiting, hoping, jogging in place. Um, the, the, the things that we could do did not accomplish very much. Remember, under those things, we were slaves. And we, you, we began as slaves, and as long as you're under them, you end as a slave. So now the Old Testament was before the gospel. And the Old Testament features many champions of faith who know God personally. Um, but the truth is, God has always drawn people to himself. Those uh, who, in the Old Testament who knew and loved God, they would have known the law and honored it, but it was God himself that they knew and loved. Remember when the children of Israel left Egypt and they were at the, the mountain where the Ten Commandments was given and Moses was up on the mountain and the people talked Aaron into making a golden calf and they partied and did bad things. And, um, and so in the aftermath of all that, God has this conversation with Moses that says, I'm not going to go with these people anymore because they're so sinful. I'll probably destroy them before they get to the promised land. And Moses essentially says, this is in Exodus 32, if you don't go up with us, just kill me. (laughs) It's like the only thing that we have that makes us different from everybody, anybody on earth, is that you're with us. And that's just as true today. So that was true in the Old Testament as it's true now. But the, the problem, now, there was this righteousness. Remember, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And Habakkuk, Habakkuk 6, 8, whichever, the point in Habakkuk that talks about that Paul quotes in Romans 1, the righteous shall live by faith. So that was always true in the Old Testament. The law did not make any of that untrue. What the law did and where it caused people to stumble was thinking that they could use it and somehow become righteous by just, you know, in some sense, obeying what it said. Uh, so, but it was really God, the people who were champions in the Old Testament were not champions at keeping the law. They were people who loved God and knew him the one true God worthy of worship and praise, their great rescuer and deliverer. They knew him, loved him, and served him. But of course, not everyone was a believer. In Luke 18, it tells a story of a Pharisee and a tax collector who go to pray in the temple. So the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, 
For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So can you see the great difference between these two men? The Pharisee was his own hope. He believed in himself and what he could do on his own. But what did the tax collector know that we sometimes forget? The tax collector knew he needed help and put his hope in God. And he went home justified. The other had the works. The tax collector had a heart for God. And he was the one going home with, without sin. And the tax collector who had the life and the works was not forgiven because he thought much of himself. So believing in God is better, better than anything we can do on our own. Paul in verses 8 through 11 is pleading with the Galatians not to go back to trusting in their own efforts because if you go back to a righteousness based on special observances that you follow, special days that you keep, and special things that you do, then you have turned away from and fallen from Christ Jesus, God the Son, Lord of heaven and earth. And if you go back to basing your life on what you do, then you've rejected God rejected Christ in the gospel for the crazy idea that you can do better on your own. You can't. You never could and you never will. When you reject grace and turn your back on faith, you are once more just like in the Garden of Eden, telling God that you have a better idea, putting yourself under these elementary principles that Jesus triumphed over and put to open shame by his death on the cross If you go back to those, it's the same as believing the serpent's lie that we're better off on our own and our own efforts. When we choose to trust in our efforts, our fading goodness and what we can do, whatever we may call ourselves, if this is how we live, functionally we are pagans once more. So faith in Christ is so much better. Romans 8, 3 3 and 4 says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he he condemned sin in in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit when we walk according to the spirit we are living by faith we're not trusting in ourselves we're we're trusting in God the spirit prompts us to love and serve and pursue Christ John sixteen fourteen and 15 says, The Spirit of truth will glorify me. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. So that's a simple statement, but <laughs> take a minute to consider what it says. He will glorify me. The Holy Spirit will glorify Christ. He'll take what is mine and he'll declare it to you. He'll, he will tell you things that are true, the way things really stand. And, and what is all that? Jesus said, all that the Father has is mine. All that the Father has is mine. That's a mouthful. (laughs) Uh, So everything that's true, everything that the Father brings, that the Son has, comes to us through the indwelling person and work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, There's nothing lacking. So he will glorify me and take, let's see. So Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And he is a living embodiment of truth in all that he is and all that he has done. Jesus is our way back to the Father. Jesus restores what we lost in our sin and rebellion against God. He is how we come back to the Father. And Jesus is our life. 
For believers in Christ, he is all truth. He is our way, our life. Our salvation is a person. Our truth is a person. Our salvation is Christ. And uh, I want to finish with Philippians 3.3, which says, For we are the true circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We are the true circumcision because it's not just our flesh that has been uh, pierced by the love of God, but our hearts and lives have been opened and changed by the Spirit's work in us. We are those who worship by the Spirit of God and in faith, uh, we are those very worshipers in spirit and truth that the Father tells us in John 4 that he's looking for. Because we, our hearts have been changed. Because Christ is our hope. Spirit and truth means, you know, we, we are truly giving the Father worship, not thanking him like the Pharisee. God, I thank you. I'm not like all these bad people over here. But God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We glory, and we glory in Christ Jesus, in who he is and what he has done. We glory in his grace, his salvation, his presence in our lives. We glory in the gospel and the strong hope of an eternity spent with Christ. And we put no confidence in the flesh. That's a train that left the station, ran out of tracks a long time ago. And it's going nowhere. Let's pray.